this past week has been one of those um, types of weeks that I'm sure we've all had, and uh, it's been kind of a brutal week for me. You ever have one of those weeks that is just like, oh, this is, you know, just when you think it can't get any worse than that, it just keeps on getting worse. So, you know, you learn not to say it can't get any worse because you know it can. And it's been one of those weeks, and I was reminded of the importance of uh, communication and um, how easily misunderstood you can be when you're trying to communicate something. And how easily the problems that develop because of communication problems, how easily they could be resolved if you just were paying attention when someone's talking. Just like now. (laughs) See, we we could have all kind of communication problems here this morning if you don't listen to what I have to say. You know, you look around the room, you check it out, and that's the only thing. You look over and these people over here, it's like... And and, uh, what can happen is you can walk away and you can hear what you want to hear. And come to some conclusions based on that. Anyway, give me an illustration. Uh, I had a customer call us this week, and um, this gentleman called, and he wanted me to give him an estimate on putting heating and air conditioning in his house. And he lived in the Pasadena area, and it was obvious that uh, we had a slight communication gap, and I was trying to weed through it, and uh, the man was from somewhere in the Middle East, and I'm not sure exactly where, but I could tell by, by the dialect uh, of, the, uh, of the conversation that was going on that we had a definite problem. So you just can't, you listen very intently. And you've ever been on one of these conversations, you know how it goes. So I asked him for directions to his house, because I'm familiar with the Pasadena area. Our office is kind of out that way, Glendora. And I know the off-ramps on the 210 freeway. So I always just kind of, just give me the off-ramp from the 210 freeway, and then I'll be able to zero on and then. He said, okay. He goes, you take the 210 freeway, and you take it west to L.A. Then you go north on Ahin, and then you go to the mountain, and you go left on a and I'm thinking, because as soon as he said, Aheen, I had a problem. <laughs> but, but I wanted to be polite. I listened to him a little longer. So then I, started, I said, well, okay, listen. Okay, I'm going to take the 210 freeway west toward L.A. Uh-huh. Okay, good. Then I'm going to go north on, where was I going to go north again? Off of Aheen. I said, Aheen. He goes, Aheen. And you know, like when you're really having a problem, you start yelling? <laughs> because you know I can't hear right. It must be what the problem is. He said, I said, North, I'm sorry, what was the offering? Ahin. You go North and Ahin. And I went, okay, uh, can you spell that for me? You have to do that. And he said, Ahin. A-L-L-E-N. Ahin. And I knew where Ahin off-ramp was. Because I'd been there before, and so it was a matter of listening and trying to come up with an objective standard so that we can communicate with one another. And I was able to do it. Spell it. If you can spell it, I can understand it. But if you can't spell it, I'm never going to meet you. (laughs) And it worked out great. An objective measurement. You have to have something objective because I could feel like I heard what he said and he could feel like he communicated it well and we could all feel real fuzzy and warm about this conversation, but I was never going to meet this man until he spelled Aheen. Now, you all know how to spell it. So that was mild. That was kind of funny. That was a fun thing. Then later in the week, I had something that wasn't as much fun. And, you know, I, I like to share my baseball Ex, uh, my, my baseball situations with you just to show you that I'm out there in the real world with the rest of you. And uh, we had a baseball game and we played this particular team who decided to protest the baseball game that we won because 
of what is going to become another communication problem. So anyway, what happened was we won the game. The guy protests the game. And he protested it on the grounds of, I cheated. <laughs> Which I know you're surprised, right? <laughs> I know. I was, sh- I was shocked myself. Because I cheated. And, and I went, well, we're going to have to probably get this resolved. So they called a board meeting uh, to resolve this protest. And that's according to the rules that we have. So I was sitting in the board meeting. And they said, you violated the minimum playing time rule. You didn't put a player in the game until after the minimum time that he should have been in the game. So we're having this conversation. In the meantime, he called four other managers in the league who we've been kicking their derrieres all season long, and they were a little excited about the fact that this was going on. So they came down there too. And if you ever been, I mean, it was like a flashback. I mean, it was like, I, I couldn't believe this was happening. I'll stand in the middle of a circle, these four guys who were screaming in my face. You cheated all season long. See that? And they got their, rule, they got their playbooks out and they were circling stuff. They were going through all this and they were screaming in my face. And, and I'm thinking, you know, what is going on? So we go in this meeting and here's the rule. I'm going to read the rule and you tell me what this says. <laughs> hey, I got an extra five minutes. I'm not wasting your time. <clears throat> okay, here's the rule. Ready? Here's the rule. It is the purpose of this league to ensure that every player participate in each game. Each Little League player shall play a minimum of 12 consecutive outs in each game and bat. Every player on the team must enter the game by the beginning of the home team's turn of bat in the fourth inning. Bottom of the fourth. That's the rule. Then it says players who are substitute at this point who do not get a turn of bat are subject to the next rule. Rule 9, paragraph B, below. Rule 9, paragraph B, below. Player does not get a turn of bat or plays minimum playing time. The player must be in the starting lineup of the next regular game. Must continue the lineup until the player has batted once. He must then meet the consecutive out requirements of the rule. Okay, what does that mean to you? (laughs) I cheated. Yeah, yeah. Way to jump to conclusions there, big guy. It's like, what does that mean? What does that mean? Oh, okay, what does that mean to you? Okay, you can put a player in the game late, but if he doesn't get that 12 consecutive outs, now let me ask you a question. What are 12 consecutive outs? Three innings? Three innings? How do, you, how do you mathematically do that? All oh, three innings. Why? Okay, we, we say, how do you vote three innings? I already made a fool of this person, but so you can you jump right on there if you want. Three innings, very good, Larry. Way to go. Stick to that. Even though you're wrong, you know, that's the principle of the thing. You stick to it. Do I hear four innings? Four innings. Do I hear four innings? Anybody? Four innings? Two innings. Do I hear two innings? Two innings, we don't want two innings. Four innings, four innings, we don't want two innings. Four innings, four innings, two innings. All right. Yeah. Okay, listen up. It's two innings. Good. And you were feeling bad about yourself until you got here, weren't you? Three in the top of the inning, three in the bottom of the inning, three in the top of the inning, three in the bottom of the inning. Two innings, 12 consecutive outs. Okay. All right. Yeah, I know. I know why you never made a manager. What? There's math involved in this? So anyway, so my understanding, and it says by the bottom of the fourth inning. Now, what does it mean for a, a player to be in the game in the bottom of the fourth inning? What does that mean? Does he have to go into the game? Does he have to actually bat? Does he have to actually go onto the field? How does a kid get in the game? You go tell the scorekeeper, I'm going to put him in the game. Even if he never gets in the game, he's in the game. Isn't that interesting? 
So we're having this meeting, we're discussing all this, and everybody has a different opinion about what all this stuff means. My understanding of it was very simple. If the boy didn't get in the game in the bottom of the fourth inning, he always got in the game in the top of the fifth inning. If he didn't get 12 consecutive outs because we were winning the game and we didn't get the bat in the bottom of the sixth inning, then he started the next game. I did that all season long. Twelve weeks into the season, this guy protests and said, I'm not doing it right. So he gets the other managers, they all come, they're screaming at me, even cheating, violently. they're screaming in my face. So we go into the board meeting, and uh, the board says, okay, the rule is that every player has to be in the game by the bottom of the fourth inning. Meaning that all you have to do is tell your scorekeeper he's going in the game. If he gets in the game or doesn't get a game, that's not really the issue here. It's that he's penciled to go into the game. So if he never takes a step on the field until the top of the fifth, he's still in the game in the bottom of the fourth. Okay? That's the rule. If he doesn't get his consecutive at-bats or he doesn't get an at-bat, then he has to start the next game. We saw that you did that all season long. All season long, you've been consistently wrong based on our interpretation of the rule as a board. That's fine. Now, now I understand. So you go on from there. So they said, because of that, we believe that you didn't do it on purpose. There's no question about it. Because the intent is for every boy to play a minimum of 33% of the playing time of games that they're there to ensure that every kid gets in the game. So I produce a thing that shows every one of our kids, the minimum amount they played is 48% of the games. And those are some of our kids who haven't developed quite as much as the others. So I said, I'm exceeding the intent of the rule, however you violate the rule. I can live with that. Okay? And because of that, um, the first offense is a warning. The second offense is a second warning. The third offense is a written warning. The fourth offense is uh, discipline and, will, and would have to suspend you. I can handle that. Okay, I'm getting a warning now. You know, I'm not that stupid. I can learn from this. And they said, okay, for game, game one was your first offense. Game three was your, was your second offense. Game four was your third. And game six was your fourth. And so we're spend, suspending the next two games said, okay, well, I felt like that. I felt really sorry for myself. I really did. I felt really bad for myself. But, you know, what's amazing is that I learned a lot from it, and I'm still not done learning. I'm still trying to figure it all out. But there's an interesting thing that, that took place through all of this, and that is the importance of applying an objective standard in an area where everyone has an opinion. Everybody had an opinion. Everybody left that room with a different opinion. I talked to some of the coaches yesterday, and they still insist a kid's not in the game until he walks on the field, even though the board just ruled that a boy is in the game when you pencil him into the lineup whether he ever gets on the field or not. There are still opinions that vary all over the place. So I learned an important lesson, and that is that we need objective standards outside of ourselves because every one of us interpret things subjectively which is fascinating to me in light of why we're here and what we're here to discuss. Because in this particular case that we started last week, the question that was raised is, do you really know, do you really know God in a personal way? Do you really, have you really come to know Christ according to the objective standard that's laid out in the Bible about what the Bible has to say is required of a person to fulfill that requirement? Have you come to know Christ based on an objective standard? And here it is, right here. This is God's objective standard. This is God's Little League rule book, if you want to put it another way. This is the one that when everybody says, look at the rules, they go to it and they say, here's the rule, and this is what we're talking about, bud. This is the rule right here. And their, their reading of the rule simply said, hey, no, you need to stop at the end of that sentence. That's the end of that particular issue. If the boy doesn't bat, then you go to the next rule. You misunderstood that. Oh, great. Well, we have something objected. Every one of us can go to it and say, you know what? And you know what I told the board? I said, listen, you know what? I appreciate and respect what you're doing. 
It's a difficult thing to be in this position. And not only do I respect what you're doing, but I'll abide by the suspension. And, and, you know, and I'm sorry that it happened and it won't happen again. And they looked at me like, why aren't you screaming and yelling? Why aren't you saying how unfair it is? Why don't you say, well, wait, what, well we should have just warned you. Why are we Because really what they were doing was it was like a policeman pulling you over saying, listen, I'm going to warn you this time. But while I'm warning you, I think I'll write you up. And while I'm writing you up, I think we'll take you downtown. And while you're down there, we're going to throw you in prison. And while you're in prison, I think we'll beat you with a rubber hose for a while. <laughs> hey, sure appreciate that kind of warning, don't we? And that's what happened. But it didn't really matter. You know, it didn't really matter because they had all kinds of problems to deal with. They had five managers who were standing outside the door doing one of these to make sure that whatever was going to happen, happened. And so they felt good because they got what they were looking for. Um, it didn't cost us any games, so it didn't hurt my team. It didn't hurt my kids. So, I mean, basically, I just take the brunt of it. I can live with that because it's an objective standard, and as long as it's applied to everybody, that's what standards are for. So now we look at Scripture, and we look at the Bible, and it says, hey, here are the objective standards. Do you meet these standards as far as do you really know Christ like you say you do? Do you really know Him? Let me ask you a question while you're opening your Bibles. 1 John chapter 2, we're going to pick up where we left off. 1 John chapter 2, okay? Do you really meet the requirements that the Bible lays out objectively, have you come to know Christ? Or do you just think you do? See, you know what's amazing to me through this whole process was I was as sincere as can be. I knew what the intent was. I exceeded the intent of the league, which was to ensure that every boy was treated as fairly as possible by an objective standard, not by a coach who decides whether he wants to put somebody in or not, whether he's upset with somebody. I was as sincere as can be, and I knew it because this is the fifth year that I've managed. I know how to treat my players. I was sincere, but I was sincerely wrong, according to their interpretation. And as long as they're in authority, they're right, and I'm wrong, and that's as simple as it gets. So as we go down through this, let me ask you some questions. First John chapter 2, do you know him? Do you know him? Do you really know Christ like you claim to? Is there a difference between knowing someone and knowing of someone? Just real quick, what's the difference? You got it right the other day. You want to jump on it again? No, nah, no, nah, just kidding. What's the difference? Is there a difference between knowing of someone and knowing someone? Having a relationship. Okay, having a relationship. That's knowing of someone or knowing someone? Knowing a person. Knowing a person means that you have an intimate relationship with that person. You know something about them. They then too know something about you. What, do you, what about knowing of someone? Yeah, you, you hear of them. They, you, people speak of them. In the case of athletes, people write of them. Everybody knows the celebrities. I know so-and-so. Really? When's the last time you had dinner with them? When's the last time you talked to him or her? When's the last time you spent any time with them? What's, the la- what's, what's going on in their life right now that, that's bothering them and, and that you can be some help? Well, I, I don't know any, but I know them. No, you don't know them. You know of them. You read about them. You see them on TV, but you don't know them. See, our problem is that many of us know God. We know of God. We've heard of Jesus, but we don't know Jesus. We don't know the Jesus of the Bible. We've heard of Jesus. We've heard of God. We've heard of this. We've heard of that. But do we really know Him? Knowing Him implies that you've got a relationship with Him that's intimate, that you know Him personally, that you know what His desires are for your life, that you know what He expects of you. And that relationship goes both ways. And you know what he knows about you. That's an intimate relationship. 
And the question as we go through this is, what is the objective standard? 1 John chapter 2, starting with verse 3. See, it's not just sincerity. It's not emotions. It's none of those things. There's an objective standard that you can apply. Ask yourself the question, do I know Christ personally or do I know of his reputation? And there's a big difference between the two, folks, and I hope you're paying attention to what we're talking about because, hey, miscommunication in this area isn't just a two-game suspension. And by this we know that we have come to know Christ if we keep his commandments. The one who says, I've come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in Christ. The one who says he abides in Christ ought himself to walk in the same manner in which Christ walked. Beloved, I'm not writing a new commandment to you, but an old commandment which you've heard from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you have heard, and on the other hand, I am writing a new commandment to you, which is true in Christ and in you, because the darkness is passing away, and the true light is already shining. The one who says that he is in the light, and yet hates his brother, is in the darkness until now. The one who loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But the one who hates his brother is in the darkness, and walks in the darkness, and does not know where he is going, because the darkness has blinded his eyes." Let's get something straight. We talked in depth about it last week. I'm not going to go into too much. But the, the Bible implies very si- simply that every person is, is in a danger of being able to say, yeah, I know him. Just as we're in danger of saying we know a celebrity, we don't know of celebrity. We know of celebrities unless you truly do know a celebrity, right? And so what he's saying of God is that every one of us fall into the same mentality that we come into with, with our contacts with one another, and that is that we can believe we actually have come to know Christ when we don't even know him, but we know of him. That's why he says in verse 4, the one who says. There is implication here that it's easy to say that I know him. He goes on in verse 6, the one who says. It's very easy to say it. And he goes through again in verse 9, the one who says. It's easy to say it. The problem is, is it true of your life? And so he goes down through and he gives us three objective uh, biblical facts that we need to consider as far as whether we've really come to know him, whether we've truly come to know him. Three things to consider, okay, three evidences that you've got to look at in your own life and say, are these things true of my life? And let me just tell you what it will do. If you truly have come to know Christ, then these things will validate that relationship that you have with him that will give you an assurance and a confidence that you truly are a child of God. And there's nothing better than that in the whole world than to be secure in that relationship. If you don't meet these standards, then it'll take away the emotions of, well, gee, all this time I thought I was a Christian, but I don't meet the standards that are laid out. I've got the same problem that Chuck did in his Little League meeting in that I'm not meeting the objective standard. I've got to deal with that. And so we'll go down through it. The first evidence is very simple. Look what it says in verse 3. The real evidence is that we just live in obedience. Right? We know we've come to know Him. We've come to know Christ if we keep His commands. It's as simple as that. If we live a life of obedience, then we don't have anything to worry about as far as, gee, am I really a Christian or am am I not a Christian? Don't feel like it today, but I'm living in obedience. I don't have a problem with it. I know it's true. See, you're not going to find this in Scripture anywhere, but the bottom line of it is, hey, talk is cheap, Right? put up or shut up, and, and, and you go down through it, and that, you know what, our actions still speak louder than our words. You know, I find that anywhere. I mean, that's probably like God helps those who help themselves. That's in Second Opinions, Chapter 2. But, 
but, you know, all of those would be in the same place, but the principle is still true, and that is that, hey, you know what? Our actions speak louder than our words. The way we live our life demonstrates who we truly are. And the way we live our lives over a period of time is probably the greatest test to demonstrate who we truly are. And so as we go down through this, the real evidence that you and I are Christians is that we live a life of obedience to Christ's commands. Now let me ask you a question. If you know of someone, how can you live a life of obedience to his commands? Is there a difference between knowing Christ and knowing of him in this particular area? If you know Christ, well, what are you going to know about him? See, here's it. I mean, you know what? We blow through stuff like this, and sometimes we just got to get real stupid and start from the beginning. And that is, hey, if I'm going to live a life of obedience to Christ's commands, is there a question you got to ask yourself? What are they? There we go. We're starting off on the right foot now. What are they? What does he desire of my life? What does he expect of my life? What's the very first thing that he expects? Yeah, what's the greatest commandment? You know, the guy came up to him one day, and uh, he was a lawyer, tricky lawyer, like they all are sometimes. And he said, hey, Rabbi, let me ask you a question. What's the greatest commandment? What did Jesus say? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. Second is that you love your neighbor as yourself. And these two commandments, all of the law, everything in Scripture is summed up in those two things. So he said, hey, the first thing you've got to do is, my first commandment to you is that you love God with all your heart, all your soul, all your, all your mind, all your strength. What else did he say? He said, you better, believe me. you better believe in me. Over and over and over and over and over and over again. He said, look, the first thing you've got to do to get this right before you can go out living a life of obedience to me is that you have to believe in me. Isn't that, I mean, that's simple. I'm not going to go out and do something someone tells me to do if I don't believe in their authority to tell me what to do. If I don't recognize the authority of this Little League board and they say you're suspended, say you're, you're dreaming because I don't recognize your authority in my life and you can tell me to do whatever you want to tell me and I'm not doing it. So there. Huh. And then my coaches would take over a championship team and think that they got them there. <laughs> and they're both here. But see, that's, and, and isn't that the truth? You have, you have to recognize the person's authority who's telling you what to do before you even want to do it. So the first thing he says is, hey, you've got to recognize my authority as Lord of your life. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, and all your strength. Right? So what he's saying is, hey, I am the Father in one. Jesus specifically said that he was God and that we're to love him with all of our heart. That we're to be obedient to him. And we need to recognize his authority. So the question is, have you come to a decision in your own life to recognize the authority of Jesus Christ as God Almighty who has the authority and the position to tell you what he demands of your life. That's number one. You can't, go for, and you can't go anywhere from there. If you haven't done that, then nothing else I'm going to say means anything to you. You might as well check out and take some notes, stuff you need to do this week, because the rest of it's not for you. But if you have, then you need to pay attention. So what he's saying is that we'll keep his commandments. And you know what? He, and the basis of it is very simple, and that's love. If you love God, you'll do what he asks you to do. It's as simple as that. If you love God, you'll do what he asks you to do. You know what? Some of us do it because we're afraid of him. We know what the consequences may be. Sometimes we do it because we're motivated because he promises to bless us if we're walking in obedience with him. But the real bottom line of a mature relationship is that we begin to do things for one another. We do things that God tells us to do because we're mature and that we love the one who's in a position over us. And that's as simple as that. If you love me, Jesus said, you'll obey my commandments. You know what? Your actions will speak louder than your words. If you claim to love me, then you'll do what I ask you to do. In every area of life, 
And those objective standards are right here. They're right here. And he also he just kind of lays it out and, he, and, and going back to what we're talking about. But he says that, hey, you know what? If you don't do what I ask you to do, you don't love me. Look what he says. The man who says, I know him, but doesn't do what, he asked him, what God asked him to do is a liar. And the truth isn't in him. If you're not living a life of obedience to Christ, then you're lying according to the objective standard of, scri- of Scripture. And you better examine yourself because you may know of him, but you certainly haven't come to know him. And so we go through it. Now, what's the second thing that we need to take a look at? And that is, it's very simple. And uh, I like what one man wrote about obedience. Uh, Paul Van Gorder wrote this. He said, to claim the knowledge of God, yet disobey him, is an unresolvable contradiction. The evidence and the assurance that one knows God is simple obedience to his word. He goes on and he writes this. He says, life always expresses itself. In a physical sense, you don't have to say to yourself, today I'm going to try to act like I'm alive probably never seen this group but anyway and what he's, the point he's making is hey today i don't have to try to act like i'm alive if the body possesses physical life that life will be evidenced by speech action and movement do you see what he's saying the same is true spiritually i don't have to say today i am spiritually alive and now i'm going to act like a christian no more than every day that i get up in the first rolling out of bed indicates physical life so our movement, our speech, and our action throughout our, our, the course of our journeys, wherever God has us going, as far as work and relationships, neighborhood, Little League, whatever, our actions indicate whether there is spiritual life as well as physical life. Do you follow that? That's a very valid point for what we're discussing. Now, the second thing is, how else can I know that I'm spiritually alive or that I've come to know Christ? And that is the example that Jesus Christ lays out for us. Look what it says. So there's only one example, and that's Jesus Christ. 1 John 2, 6, Whoever claims to live in Christ must walk as Jesus did. Okay? Just like we asked in the first question, that is, what are his commands? Because if I'm going to obey him, I need to know him. Second question you have to ask is, if I'm going to walk like him, I need to know how he walked. Right? Now, the question that I know some is like, well, some days he walked fast because he had places to go. And other days, like, he walked slow because he was a little tired. And, you know, sometimes he, he, he ran because it was raining. No, I mean, what, what is, what's the word that we, we want to interject here for walking? How did he live? How did he live? How did he live his life while he was here on earth? When he was in the situation, I mean, the question I had asked myself as I was going through this, and I hate studying this stuff sometimes because it's like God says, look, you know what, to really get a handle on what you need to teach, I'm going to have you live it out this week, okay? Thank you very much. You know, it's, it's like, man, you know, that's why I, I can only handle, like, teaching a marriage series every two years. <laughs> but my wife's like this. She loves it. It's like, hey, when are we going to do that marriage series again? Not quite yet. I don't feel the tension around the old ranch like, you know, what we need to feel. But, you know, how it goes. Anyway, um, so the question is, how, how did he walk? How did he live? So I, I try to put myself in this situation. I'm thinking, okay, now if Jesus was in the situation that I find myself in this week, how would he have handled it? How would he have handled this? That's really the cutting-edge question, isn't it? That's kind of like the question that we asked, well, w- would you invite Jesus to where you're about to go? Would you include Jesus in on the conversation that you're having right now? Would you include Jesus in on the joke that you're about to tell? Would you call him over and say, hey, come here. Hey, Lord, I got a really funny story. You're going to love this one. Would you ask him over? 
you know, would you include Jesus in on this group of people that you're about to do something with? See, I mean, you know what? I know I say, well, that, that sounds childish, but let me just tell you something. It works. It works for me. It works for me. How about you? If you ask yourself that question the day before you leave, all through the week, I'll bet you it changes the way you live your life. If you come to know him and just don't know of him. Would you include Jesus? And so I was thinking, now what would Jesus do in this situation? How did he live his life? When these guys circled around me and they're screaming in my face, I was just wondering if Jesus would just scream in their face. Turn right back at them, go nose to nose, and just scream right back at them. Now I wonder when, when, when they were calling me a liar and a cheat, if Jesus would turn around and look at them and say, you know what, you're a liar, you're a cheat, and you're fat and ugly too. Now I wonder, now I wonder if Jesus would have said that. You know, I, I struggle with that. Because this one guy just really gets to me. I wonder if Jesus would have been more patient than I was. One guy really bugs me. <laughs> he does, man. This guy's driving me crazy. He's been doing it to me all year. And then he calls me at night when no one's around and says, Hey, I'm really sorry about this. <laughs> no, it all goes with managing a winning team. Hey, 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 hey. <laughs> listen, listen, listen. What a difference a year makes. Yeah, see, yeah, no, I want to. But listen, I mean, hey, the board members looked and said, hey, your team's not in first place, are they? Said, gee, yeah, why? What's this have to do with anything? And they all just started laughing. And it happens every year. Every team that's winning, people are out to get them. So I finally arrived. We've all arrived as a coaching staff. Thank you very much. But, but, but I, I just wondered, I mean, would Jesus have been more patient with them than I was. How would he handle it? Absolutely. What do you mean, Ben, absolutely? You weren't even there. You know. But those are questions you've got to ask. So let's just go down through some very basic things. Because here's the question you've got to ask yourself. That's that situation in my life. How would Jesus handle it? How would Jesus handle the situation that you're going through? Because I'm not unique. What I went through this week, others have gone through it in different areas of the life. I know that, so I don't have the, the woe is me's. I've had those for three or four days, and, I, and, and now I'm better now. But, but, well, at least I think I am, and I'm not applying any objective standard to it whatsoever, okay? But let me ask you something. You're going through some tough times, right? And we could have a, can you top this tough time story morning if you want to do that? But how would Jesus handle the situation you're going through? You having a tough time in your marriage? How would Jesus handle it? Having a tough time in business? How would Jesus handle it? Having a tough time with, uh, you know, one of your kids? How would Jesus handle it? That's an important question to ask. How did he live his life? Well, let's take a look at the first thing. Jesus was humble. Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30, it says that he was humble in spirit. Philippians 2, 3 through 8. Just jot them down because I want you to study it. I've studied it a lot. So I already know what I want to talk about. You study it. And you study it with keeping in mind the situation you're going through and how can I apply this character trait that Jesus applied. How can I be humble in what I'm going through? Going through it may make you humble. But you know what? Philippians 2, I'm going to just share with you how I applied this as I was dealing with this situation. Some of you may apply it a little differently, and that's all right. But this is, this is what I learned from it. Humility. Philippians 2, 3 through 8. You know what it says? That Jesus humbled himself to the point of obedience, to the point of death on the cross. He humbled himself, and you know, way, you know how he was humbled? 
He was humbled by being obedient to what God the Father had planned for his life here on earth. And let me just tell you something. There is nothing more humbling than obedience. There is nothing more humbling than obedience. There is nothing more humbling that I could experience than looking at the people in that room and say, you know what? I'm going to abide. I'm going to obey your decision. There's nothing more humbling than standing at a baseball game, watching your kids on the field with your coaches coaching them, doing a good job, but not a great job, so I don't get too <laughs> cocky. Keep this humility thing in mind. And standing, on the, and standing up on the hillside and not being allowed to go down near the bench, not being allowed to give any instruction, but just to stand there and watch and have every parent of every other team looking at you from the bench and pointing their fingers at you and calling people over and pointing. After a while, I just start waving. Yeah, it's me. <laughs> you know, I was going to wear like a prison outfit, ball and chain. You know, I thought they'd get a dunking tank, you know, something, you know, just so everyone can get this thing over with. But there's nothing more humbling than to say, I abide by your authority. See, some of us have to do that. Some of us are in situations because we're in rebellion against the authority that's asking us or telling us to do certain things. And what they're asking us to do doesn't violate the principles of Scripture, and we have no basis to rebel against what they're asking us to do. There's nothing more humbling for a kid than to obey the authority of his parents who say, I want you home by 11 o'clock when everybody else that they're going out with, it doesn't matter when they come home. There's nothing more humbling than that. But you know what? The point is, what would Jesus have done? Jesus, you know what he asked? Hey, should, this man, should they pay their taxes? He said, render under Caesar the things that are Caesar, and under, the God, under, and, and under God the things that are God's. They say, hey, I don't have to pay taxes. I created you. I'll do what I want to do. I don't have to do anything. I don't have to be in submission to earthly authority. I'm God. I made you. I don't have to listen to you. That's not what he said. He was obedient to the point of death. He was humble in that situation. Was he patient? You better believe it. I thought about this, and it was very convicting as I read through it once again. But in 1 Peter, I'll just read it to you if you want to look at it. That's fine. 1 Peter chapter 2. How would Jesus handle the situation you're going through? Some of us need to develop in this area of our life. You know, the old joke, don't pray for patience. You're going to end up with a ton, a ton of things that are going to make you more patient, but there's nothing better than being a patient, mature Christian in our relationship with other people. But the only way you, you develop that is to go through things like I went through this week because I learned to be patient. It's not a natural thing. It wasn't my first response. I'll, I'll, I'll just be upfront with you. It was not my first response. But the more I looked at what God had to say, the more wisdom I saw in what he, what he asked me to do. It says in 1 Peter chapter 2, it says, you know what, in verse 21, you've been called. You have been called. If you're one of God's kids, He has called you for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in His steps, who committed no sin, nor is any deceit found in His mouth. We are called to suffer for the cause of Christ. We are called to put up with injustices for the cause of Christ. Why? Because it's the greatest testimony that this world will ever see. To sit in a room and say, I abide by your decision because I'm one who is under the authority of God and I know the importance of being under God's authority. If he says it, I do it whether I understand it or not. I may not even disagree with him sometimes, but I know he's right. I may not even agree with what you're doing and the way you did it, but it doesn't matter. But I'm going to abide by it because I understand. I too am a man under authority. You know what Jesus said about the centurion soldier who said that? He said, there's no greater faith if I find than anyone in all of Israel. A person who understands authority and abides by it. 
But Jesus, you know what's amazing is Jesus didn't do anything wrong. He could have been very impatient with people who are just cruelly mistreating him. But you know what it said? And while he was being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats. But he kept entrusting himself to God who judges righteously. How do, I, how do I apply this? I just got to believe that, that God knows my heart and He knows what I did and He knows what my intention was and He knows I also abided by their decision. I can't go around and explain myself to every person who wants to believe that I'm a cheater. It's impossible. My daughter came home from high school and said, everyone's talking about you today, Dad. All the empire's talking about you. Everybody's talking about you. Hey, I can't control that. But I can trust God who judges righteously. And I have to worry about trying to explain myself because it's a losing battle. It really is. And you know the good news is? Neither do you. Because if you do what's right before God, then you don't have to worry about any other judge because he's the only judge that we got. And you know what's amazing too? It says, you know what? While he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. While he suffered, he uttered no threats. You know, my first response is just to say, hey, don't threaten me. I'll threaten you. Don't criticize me. I'll criticize you. Don't attack me. I'll jump right in your face. Don't point your finger at me. I'll bust it off and shove it down your throat. Oh, I know. None of you ever think those things. But I do. Those are my first responses. But the good news is, when I first became a Christian, maybe a month or two or three or a year after that, I would have broke his finger off and shoved it down his throat. I'm making progress. Now I just think it. <laughs> hey, who knows? Hey, maybe, maybe next time, I, that, that won't be my first thought. Maybe next time my first thought will be, hey, don't worry about it. Just trust God. We're all growing. But we're only growing if we've come to know Him. See, that's, that's step one. How else would He handle it? Jesus said, hey, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Love your enemies. There's some people who are hard to love this week for me. Real hard to love. Man, they're hard to love. But I'll tell you what, when I started praying for them this week, it got easier to love them. Isn't it amazing how that works? This is simple. Man, you put it, to, put it into practice, it'll change your life. Jesus was unselfish. Not everything revolved around him. Not everything was based on just pleasing himself. But his primary, primary response to life was to do the will of the Father. His primary objective was to please God in everything that he did. And you know what? I thought about this through the course of what I was going through, and I thought, you know what? Is my primary motivation to clear my name and to please myself, or is it to please God and how I handle this? That's really the test. And I began to realize that at first, all I cared about was that people would think well of me. I've worked hard to earn a good reputation. And in one moment, careless words on the part of another person have tainted the last five years of everything that I've tried to do in this league that I, rep- that I represent. But then I realize that that's out of my control. But I want to please God in everything that I do, which leads to probably the most difficult of all, and that is to be forgiving. To be forgiving. And you know what's amazing? Jesus, as he was on the cross, man, I mean... <laughs> 
as people were spitting on him, as people beat him up, as people yelled at him, as people called him names, as people did all the things they did to him, as they took his clothes off and they ripped him up in front of him and they divided him up as they gambled for it, as they mocked him with wine and sour wine, and as they did all the things that they did to him. You know what he had the audacity to say? Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Can you imagine that? Can you even imagine putting yourself in that position? And I'm feeling sorry for myself, thinking, oh, look what these people have done to me. Look what they've done to me. And the, and, and the toughest thing to do, and recognize this, Ephesians 4, 31, 32, be kind, tenderhearted to one another, forgiving one another just as God in Christ has forgiven you. Thank God for that. And so how did Jesus walk? He's very forgiving in the way he lived his life. He's just. He's God. And if he says what he's going to do, he's going to do, he's going to do it. But the point that he made is very simple. And that is, okay, Chuck, how are you going to apply this to your situation? Man, the hardest thing I did yesterday, particularly after everything had gone on, the managers that were there, they came together. They gathered in a little group. They called the umpire over from the game. They called a board member over to talk about it. Every parent on the other team was involved in it. And you know what they were trying to do? They were trying to have me physically removed from the baseball field. Area. Totally. Because that's the rule, they said. And the board said, no, it's not. He has every right to be here. He's a parent as well as anybody else. But he can't give instruction and he can't say anything. Every one of them got together to do that to have me removed. You know what the hardest thing for me to do after that was? Stay? No way. Stay? That was easy to stay. The hardest thing was individually to go up to each one of them as they were hanging around and say, hey, look, you got a minute? I want to talk to you. Number one, I don't respect the fact that you went behind my back and that you didn't have enough guts to come and talk to me face-to-face about what you perceive to be a problem on my part. If you've known I've done it all season, why didn't you tell me eight weeks ago or eight games ago? Why did you wait and form a lynch mob? I don't respect that, but I understand it. Now, the second thing I just want to let you know is that I forgive you for what you did, and as far as I'm concerned, the issue's behind us, and I'm moving on with my life, and I hope that you would too. Took care of one. Went over to the other one. Did the same thing to the other one, and I'll do the same thing to every one of them until I get all of them taken care of that were involved in it. Not because I really want to, but because I know it's the right thing to do. And you don't see a dumber look on people's faces when you do something like that. And you know what was amazing is one guy said, well, he goes, you know, I came over to say hi to you, and um, and you turned and walked away. I said, you know, I'm really sorry that you would think that. Uh, I didn't hear you say hi. I didn't even see you come over to me. Um, And obviously that must not be how I'm feeling because I'm coming to talk to you face to face. So, you know, that may, you know, I'm sorry that you even perceived that. But isn't that amazing? But let me tell you something. That's what he would do if he was in the same situation. So he knew that this is unbelievable. This is hard to understand. But let me just tell you something. When you live your life walking as Jesus walked, you're going to be the most hard to understand person that your world has ever come in contact with. It is impossible to understand a Christian who's living the Christian life doesn't get any simpler than that. Last thing. Let me just show you this because this one here kind of ties it all together. Okay? 
The main effect that you're going to have on other people is that when you love one another, Jesus, in this particular case, John writes, whoever loves his brother lives in the light and there is nothing in him to make him stumble. Whoever loves his brother lives in the light and there's nothing in him to make him stumble. You know what one of the greatest evidences that you have come to know Christ and that you are a child of God, that you are, to put it this way, in God's family? You've got brothers and sisters who you have nothing in common with. You can't even relate to them for a second. You've got a room full of people like this that's the most amazing group of assorted people that I've ever seen in my life. We've got shepherd groups of people who come together. You think we have absolutely nothing in common. I don't know how these things work. And there's one thing and one thing above everything else that me is an evidence that I've come to know Christ and that is I love His kids. That is that I have love for other Christians who before I couldn't stand the sight of. You think about that. Christians are weird if you're not a Christian. They are some of the most impossible people. We are some of the most impossible people for non-Christians to even like, yet alone love. And you know what Jesus said? They will know that you are Christians by your love for one another. The greatest testimony that we have before the world is for me to say, you know what? I love other Christians and I have nothing in common with them other than the fact that we both have put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And we both know who the authority is in our life. And you know what's an amazing thing? That draws me together with them. I don't care what color they are. I don't care what they do for a living. I don't care where they're from originally. I don't care where they live now. But we have a common bond in Jesus Christ that defies explanation. I've got friends who are Christians who we've come to become friends with over the years who are closer to me than any family members that I've spent my whole life with. Because we have a common identity in Jesus Christ that I can sit down and talk to them about spiritual things. That I can ask them about their struggles and their walk with Christ and living a life like I just said. How do you apply this in your life? And here's what we do. And thanks for the encouragement. I mean, I've got people that we don't see for regretfully for a year or two at a time. We can get together and in one minute of being back together again, we pick up right where we left off. And it's like we never missed a moment of time. And I can say goodbye to them because I know I'm going to spend eternity with them. We've got plenty of time to make up for things. Then and I know God has a purpose for their life and where they are. God has a purpose for my life when I where I am. I don't have to be broken and crushed by it because I know that God's in control and I can't wait to spend eternity with Him. And if He gives us little glimpses of time here on earth that we can have dinner together or spend a weekend together, then I praise God because it's wonderful and I love every minute of it. And you know what? Fourteen years ago, before I accepted Christ, I couldn't stand Christians. That defies explanation, other than the fact that the Bible says clearly. You know what? If you've come to know Christ you're going to have love for Christians that doesn't make any sense to this world that we live in. There is objective evidence, folks. There's objective standards that you can apply, apply to whether you've come to know Christ. And as we go through this, don't look at that. I don't got time. Look at this. We'll close on this. But if you go through it, just ask yourself some tough questions. Do you really know Him or do you know of Him? If you've come to know Christ, and you can get this thing resolved right, right away. You say, well, I heard of him, but I don't really know him. I don't know what he commands in my life. I don't know what he desires in my life. I don't know anything about him. Hey, step one is very simple. You just say, Lord, I want to know you. Come into my life. Do whatever you want to do. Be Lord of my life. Because I believe that the greatest commandment is I need to love the Lord God with all my heart, soul, strength, and might. And that's what I want to do. I want to start there. 
And you know what will happen after that? Then you'll begin to live a life that will be in keeping with his commandments. How do I need to change in this area of my life? What do I need to do? What's your standard? What is God's rule book? God, what does your rule book have to say about what I'm going through? Let me read that and see it. Oh, I don't agree with that. doesn't matter. That's what it is. Okay, I'll abide by it because I know you're in authority over my life. I, I trust you. I don't understand it, but I don't understand a lot of things. You know, you made me. I'm pretty stupid, so I, I'll just go along with it. So you just do it. Second thing is that you'll follow Jesus. Whatever Jesus would have done, ask yourself a very simple question. Lord, how would you handle the situation that I'm in right now? What would you do? Oh, you'd be humble? You'd recognize authority? You'd be obedient? Oh, you'd be patient? Oh, great, okay, I need to know that. You love your enemies? You pray for those who persecute you? Okay, I'll do the same thing. Oh, what else do I need to do? Oh, I need to forgive them? Okay, well, I'll go do it. But man, you know, that's going to be real hard to do. Well, that's right, it's not hard to do because you're already humble, so what do you got to worry about? Your pride will get in the way for you to forgive them, so don't worry because you don't have any pride because you're humble already. So it all takes care of itself. So you can go and take care of that right now. Okay, do I got to do it now? Well, what are you going to wait for? Might as well take care of it now, right? Okay, I'll take care of it now. I, hey, if you're not managing a team, you've got a lot of stupid stuff to talk to yourself about. Man, I was up there like on the hill going, they probably thought that, you know, I, I flipped my wagon or something. But that's the kind of stuff I wrestle with. And then you just go and you take care of it. And then the last thing is that you're going to love other Christians. You're going to love other Christians. Some of us are hard to like, but we're easier to love. And so we need to do that. Let me close with this. Let me ask you a question. It's a very simple illustration. I hope you grasp it. If you don't, I don't mean to imply anything about you. (laughs) If you want to adopt a child into your family, when does that child become a part of your family? Anybody? Anybody? Second inning. Second inning. No, bottom of the fourth. Whether he gets in or not, pencil it down in the book. If you want to adopt a child in your family, when does he become a part of your family? The minute you sign that paperwork, that child becomes a part of your family. When do you think that child feels like a part of your family? Huh? When he knows he's accepted, when he feels loved, when you go through situations together that test those insecurities that he has. When he screws up and makes a mistake and he wonders, are they going to kick me out? Are they going to turn me loose? Are they going to let me go? Are they going to keep me? Or what do we do? That's the kind of situation that happens in our life, right? And so he begins to say to himself or herself, does this family, do I really belong to this family? As you develop in that relationship and as those insecurities begin to dwindle away over the passage of time, as that child begins to know its parents, as that parent begins to know the child, then those insecurities begin to diminish over a period of time. Our lives as Christians is no different. The moment that you and I, according to Scripture, becomes a Christian, try not to let people walking by distract you. Listen to me. The moment that you and I accept Jesus Christ in our life is the moment that God says, I ink that paper. You're now one of mine. You may feel insecure in our relationship, and I understand that. You may not think that you're loved. I understand that. You may think if you make a mistake and you sin, that I'm not going to love you anymore, that I'm going to let you go. I understand that. Because that's part of growing in our relationship together. But let me just tell you something. When you invited Christ into your life and you understood that His death on the cross was all sufficient for your sin, that that blood took care of all of it, the moment you ask Him into your life is the moment that God he signed that adoption paper and you became one of His. As you grow in your relationship with Him, the insecurities will begin to go away. 
as you walk in obedience with him, you can be assured and be confident that you're a child of God. There is no one that ever needs to leave thinking, if I make a mistake, am I really a Christian? The mistakes in the life of a Christian should be an exception to the rule, but the rule should be that we are becoming more and more conformed to the image of Christ. Thirteen years ago, I would have done something a different way. Today, I've done it a different way. I can look in that, and I'm assured in my heart and have confidence in my heart because I'm obedient to the Word of God that I really did come to know Him 13 years ago. I don't have any question in my mind. And it's not because I'm teaching a class because there are a lot of non-Christians that are teaching Bible classes. So what we need to understand is I can have an assurance because it's objective based on the Word of God. The fact that I can walk as Jesus walked and live as He lived, not because of who I am, but because I believe what He says. And the third thing is that I can love you, other Christians, where I never could have before, is an evidence to me that I can have a confidence of my relationship with Christ. Romans 8. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you've received the spirit of adoption and as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, we are heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. I'll tell you what, that is some good news, folks. Let me just tell you this. If you've asked Christ into your life, and if you're obedient to his commandments, and you walk like Jesus walked, and you love other Christians, you have no reason to let Satan ever put an ounce of doubt in your life as to whom you belong to. Let's pray. Our Father, we just thank you for this comforting words of how practical your standards are, how we can apply them to I mean, what could seemingly be the dumbest situations in life, how I can apply them to a Little League situation, and yet know that the application of that is a testimony as to my relationship with you. God, may we be doing that in every area of our life so that we could be a light in the world. And, you know, we know that the light shines in the darkness and the darkness doesn't comprehend it. And, in fact, the darkness will do everything it can to squash the light because it makes them uncomfortable in their position. God, help us to be that light. Help us to just live a life that's in obedience. We don't even have to try to be a light. God, we know if we live in obedience that we will be a light. Help us to live as Jesus lived. Help us to ask the tough questions of ourselves. What would Jesus do in this situation? And then turn to the Word of God to see the objective answer and not what we feel He would have done, not what we think He would have done, but what He actually did. And Lord, we just thank You for that and the testimony that it will be before a world who needs to know more than anything that there is a God who created Him, that loved Him so much that He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to die for Him. And that all we need to do is recognize his authority and we can spend an eternity with him forever. What a great deal. You paid the price. You did it all. And all that you ask of us is that we do justly and we love mercy and that we walk humbly with our God. And we just thank you in Christ's name. Amen.